0: Welcome to a Words, Beats, and Life podcast. This episode features the Alternative Winter Break series.
1: What's going on, family? This is yours truly, Mazi Mutafla, Executive Director of Words, Beats, and Life. This is day five of this week, number two of the Alternative Winter Break uh, Media Arts Edition. And I'm super excited to be here. It's so funny, I've actually been talking this brother up on every panel I've ever been been on, every conference I've ever been to, because people always ask me, "Like, what was the motivation to start Words, Beats, and Life? And I always give credit to two people. One is my mentor, uh, brother by the name of Safir Robb. And the second uh, and the second is this brother right here, Mr. Dominic Painter.
0: How's it going?
1: What's going on, Dom?
0: Big shout out to Sophia. Yeah, man. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to thank you first off for, for joining us. Um, you're coming to us live from Los Angeles, California. And um, I didn't actually... So the, the reason... For folks that don't necessarily know our story, the reason why you were an inspiration is because at the second year we hosted the Words Beats and Life conference at the University of Maryland, we had a career fair, and you were there with an organization called the Midnight Forum, and you were like, "It's a hip hop non, it's a hip hop nonprofit." I was like, "What on earth is a hip hop nonprofit?" And you broke you broke down the science for me. And when I graduated um, later that year, I actually decided to create a, non- a hip hop nonprofit myself, and so the collaborations began there, but didn't but didn't stop. Nah
0: went on to do radio together, mural programs. It's a lot of history here,
1: yeah, man, you was busy well, i'm I'm especially excited to have you here for a couple reasons. One, because you're probably one of my favorite DJs, one of my favorite folks pushing the envelope around creativity with your with the with the streaming that you're doing right now. Um, but I've always wondered, much like most of the folks I've been talking to this week and last week about kind of your personal story. So, so often when we have conversations like this, it's more about the work, like talking about the things that we did, but not necessarily who we are. And I feel like because you've done the work, it's important that people know what some of your early influences and inspirations were, some of your family members, etc. So why don't we start, start with the question I've asked everybody, which is um, how much of your family history do you know? Like how far back does your knowledge of your family go?
0: It's funny cause you had brought this up and as sort of like a pre-interview question to give me the heads up. And I was tempted to call my mother just to get some extra information. But I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna force anything that wasn't already there. And the truth of it, of it is I don't really have a lot of history uh, knowledge about my family um my father is british my mother's american african-american and uh i know next to nothing about my father's family aside from where he's from and that he has a brother that has a son uh i don't know them um i don't know anything about my grandparents other than my grandmother on my mother's side i know her entire family for the most part and I can go back maybe to great grandparents on my mother's side, my, my grandmother's side. That's it.
1: And so, so can you share any, what about knowledge about your parents? Um, well, what, my grandpa-
0: what, my great grandparents on my grandmother's side, uh, um, going back a couple genera, a few generations, at least um, poor working class out of Austin, Texas, that side of the family essentially stayed in Austin uh, to this day. Almost nobody left. Um, my grandmother eventually went to college, became a chemistry teacher, uh, got married to my grandfather, who was based out of Buffalo, um, before moving to um, with my grandmother to Tennessee in Nashville, which is where I always knew her to live until her passing um, a few years back. And then that's kind of started my whole family moving away from Austin, where at, uh, at that point, my my mother went east. My my uncle went west, ended up in Portland. Uh, my mother went to uh, went to. Oh, man, I'm going blank. Ohio. It's an Ohio college near where Dave Chappelle lives. Antioch before going to Bloomington. To get her uh, next degree, where which is where she met my father. My father was a professor in Bloomington. Um, he comes from England, as I mentioned before, uh, a small country town in the mid country called. Um, I used to call it Dudley until I got older. Older, and people from the UK would be like, "Oh, you mean Dudley? Dudley?" <laughs> so my family's from Dudley. Uh, sort of considered black country. Uh, uh, You know, very, very kind of lower to middle class, working class people. And my father decided he wanted to kind of break from that and become more collegiate and uh, went into working for universities for the rest of his life. And like I said, they met, my parents met in Bloomington, Indiana. My brother ended up getting his master's at Bloomington. So I was the only person that doesn't have a connection to Bloomington because I went to University of Maryland where I met this guy, Mozzie. Um, But my mother went on to be an economist, uh, kind of breaking a lot of ground and ceilings by being a black female economist in corporate America, eventually working for mobile oil Uh, and um, where she met my stepdad, who was one of the first black uh, lobbyists on Capitol Hill.
1: Wow. You know, the thing that amazes me most about these conversations is like, that's such a simple question. And I've known you for more than 20 years and I've never asked. I feel like such a terrible friend, but I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to share it. I wonder, you know, so where did you go? Where'd you go to school? Uh, Elementary elementary school. (laughs)
0: All right. So I moved a lot. A lot of people, when I tell them where all the places I've lived, think I'm a military brat, but it's just my parents got different jobs and moved around. Uh, And then they separated and moved around some more. And uh, I was born in Boston, then Toronto. Spent a lot of time in Nashville with my grandmother. You were born. Ended up doing most of my elementary school in in St. Louis at Captain Ralph M. Captain Elementary School, where I was introduced to racism. (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know it at the time but in retrospect that was a horrible place Hmm.
1: and so talk to me about your your earliest memory as you know you're you're a a multi-dimensional creative as a dj as a graphic artist um as a podcaster as a radio personality I, i wonder tell me a little bit about your the first memory you have of doing something creative whether that's in a school home or community environment, your, your earliest memory of doing something creative.
0: Like a lot of kids. I don't know about you, Mazi. Did you have to learn recorder in elementary school?
1: <laughs> I, was in, I, I lived in Germany. Uh, until, you were in like, Germany? Okay. Yeah. I wasn't recording. No. I wasn't that they... no. <laughs> you were talking about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of kids in the United States were forced to, to have the recorder as their uh, introductory instrument. It's a woodwind instrument that's long, but it's very small and simple. So you have the like the flute holes, but you instead of doing sideways, you blow into it like a woodwind. Um, and that's sort of what they launch our musical trajectory off of. And the funny thing is my father wasn't the most creative person. He was a scientist. He was very intellectual, but he loved playing recorder, and he had all these different sized recorders, and he thought it was awesome that that's what they made us play in the United States. But for United kids in the States, it was kind of corny. But that led to me playing saxophone for a brief period, uh, which leads into another racism story at my school. Then <laughs> I stopped playing saxophone. I eventually became like more of a rhythm section guy playing bass and drums. But. Recorder. I would say that's the first time I can really recall, aside from drawing, of course, that I was really being instrumental and, and musical and creative.
1: What what grade was that that you learned? You started playing the recorder?
0: Hmm. Somewhere like second, third, fourth grade, somewhere in that realm.
1: I'm curious because I didn't have this experience. How long did you play it? Like How many how many years?
0: just they just make you play for one year as mm-hmm. like when you start doing music class you know it's like mm-hmm. in elementary school you have your mu- you have gym you have music you have just your basic science you know and that's what they first year of music that's what we did before they allowed us to pick something of our own
1: so i gotta say you're the first person that i've asked who when they talked about the the earliest memory it was with an instrument that their parent actually played. So I wonder how did your father encourage you other than having his own recorders? Do you remember?
0: Uh, My father actually wanted me to get into piano and in retrospect, I wish I'd listened. There's a few things he encouraged me to do and I didn't do it. (laughs) One was play piano and as someone that got more into music production uh, later in life, piano would have been hella valuable, and uh, and I didn't do it. The other thing was he felt like I was always a great storyteller, and I should go into acting, because I was so demonstrative when I told stories, and I, I just never got into acting. Now I live in LA, and everybody's like, you don't go on any auditions just for the hell of it? And I'm like, man, that's just too much to juggle. But I always think about it. I'm like, maybe maybe that's something I should've done. I should've gone into, you know, theater in school or something something, but I didn't do it but yeah, he wanted me to do anything he was interested in, like most parents so he's British, which meant did not like basketball, he wanted me to play soccer hmm. you know, he played recorder, so he was all about that, he thought it was awesome
1: and so, so you went so you started with the recorder. you talked about moving to the saxophone, what, what grade was that?
0: That was the following year and again i can't remember yes,
1: the saxophone in the third grade
0: fourth maybe
1: let me find out you were lisa simpson when you were a kid.
0: <laughs> i was <laughs> man yeah
1: and and so
0: that's when i met bleeding gum murphy
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so so you have that you have this immersive um, educational experience in the third and fourth grade with the recording and the saxophone do you play more instruments in elementary school or, or do you, or does your next major go ahead
0: i mean i played saxophone a few like maybe six months at the most and it was this weird situation i had i, had, I went to a, basically an all-white school in the midwest if you know anything about st louis you know it's crazy segregated and racist uh on top of that If you don't know anything about St. Louis, all you need to know is about Ferguson and Michael Brown. And if anybody grew up there or used to live there, they saw that go down and went, that's about right. And uh, (laughs) and essentially I had situations where my teachers um, lied on me in numerous occasions or bestowed some higher form of of criticism on me than they would any of the other students in the class. And you see how pale I am, it's messed up, but I ain't, you know, to any mixed kid out there, you know that no matter your shade, society looks at you as not white. Might not know what the fuck you are, but you're not white. So getting back to music class, I love playing saxophone. I had my sax with me every class. That was the one thing I looked forward to in school every day. And one day I get called uh, I get kicked out of music class, and my parents are called to school, and they're told it's because I'm never prepared and I never bring my instrument instrument with me. <laughs> so this is something I'm de- I'm like scratching my head about, and of course, as a kid, your parents are probably gonna take your your teacher's word over yours. But I was prepared and excited every time. And when I got kicked out of that class and put into something else, based on this lie that my my teacher said, um, I gave up saxophone. I sent it back. I didn't play instruments again for maybe three years. I gave up.
1: Wow, I'm mad that, you know, <laughs> personal point of privilege. I usually uh, I have this little this little fake me out haiku where I say um, my puritanical. Second grade English teacher stole my magic. I don't know how to spell. So, like you, you literally had a teacher steal your music from you and your love of a particular instrument. That's really, that's that's some next level trauma. I, I wonder when when do you feel like what is the next step in your evolution as a creative? When do you remember um, getting excited about something creative again? Is it is it middle school or is it later in elementary?
0: Um. Junior high, I lived. I moved to New York, and that's when this was like '88. This is at the height of what was originally called the Golden Age of Hip Hop, and uh, so I'm talking about Slick Rick, Big Daddy Kane, Rakim, Public Enemy, Salt and Pepper, you know, the whole nine, and uh, that got me so invested and wanting to do anything that was music. And I would say Jam Master J sparked that that fire to want to somehow, at some point, get into DJing. But it was mainly because I thought also the DJ was responsible for creating all the music. Of course, later on down the line, I realized the DJ wasn't making all the music, but in my heart, I still had it in that kind of framework that DJ and beat production go hand in hand. Uh n- no disrespect to producers or DJs, but you know, some people can DJ and can't produce, some people can produce, can't DJ. They aren't they aren't married. But I I did end up going into both. But in between finally getting to that point, I don't want to jump ahead. Uh eventually, maybe that's why I got into rhythm section, but come 8th grade, that's when I got into drums. I joined the school band. Uh, This is when I was living in Fairfax, Virginia. Another hella racist spot. And uh, that was sort of my outlet. That was like the one class where I kind of was able to excel beyond all the the crap that I was dealing with at that school.
1: And do do you remember who the the band teacher was or instructor?
0: Nah, you couldn't ask. You can... You couldn't tell you couldn't pay me to to bring up any names from of any of my teachers i know there's people like and if it wasn't for mr hammerschmidt i would have (laughs) never i can't tell you the name of one teacher i had in school
1: ever. so so does that mean that that your your love of of the rhythm section and drums was a hundred percent self-motivated there was there was nobody in your life that was encouraging
0: encouraged me to do it like most things i do i just say this is something I would really like to do when I jump into it. Or I say, this is a necessity for me to learn in order to get to where I, the, the, the destination I need to be. And I learn it. Um, at that point, it was on my mother. As with all children, you have to have at least one supportive family member and, and uh, a parent. And my mother was always 100% behind whatever I want to do. I want to take art classes. She got me. I could draw something really bad and she's gonna put it on the fridge and support me. Uh, you know, my mother's amazing. And so she immediately enrolled me. I joined the band, became part of the band, not having any knowledge. She put me in classes where I'm just doing snare drum stuff, like kind of drill stuff with the pad. I'm not learning kit, just snare for to be that one piece of the band and um, went from having zero knowledge to being basically one of the best in the group and uh, being able to actually march and do all of that. Uh, From there, I ended up moving back to St. Louis with my father in high school, and that's when I was able to uh, convince him to allow me to have a drum kit in the basement.
1: I'm curious, because I keep jumping you through time, but I wonder, how do you think, you know, Being the new kid in the city in all these different schools, how do you think that impacted you in terms of connecting with people? You talk about the towns being racist, but does that mean that there were there weren't bright spots in those places where you felt connected to others, to other young people or programs?
0: Excuse me, I'm trying to make sure this this thing keeps slipping. But. um, i I mean mean New York, for one. Was diverse you know I had friends that from that were black Puerto Rican Filipino and Indian it was amazing in New York if I could have stayed in New York I would have loved it but my mother got a job and her job which was located in Manhattan moved their their main offices to Fairfax so we moved to Fairfax and then I had such an awful experience in Fairfax that I actually opted to go back to St. Louis which had its own level of problems difference being though my father after the divorce moved to a different house which happened to be still in the same technically the same neighborhood but it was the first house over the border which put it in University City rather than Clayton so now I went from an all-white district to a basically like 98 black district which made all the difference in the world so it' was Messed up as St. Louis is going to high school to black school. Of course, the first year being—I don't know if y'all watch Mixed-ish, <laughs> but I love that show because it's the first time I've ever seen like that representation of you know the fact that it takes place in the '80s, uh, being like a kid in elementary school. It's uh, mixed. There were like no mixed kids in the '80s and early '90s. So me going to being the new kid at a black school being as light as i am also speaking proper English uh man i i got in i got into so many fights my freshman year but i tell you the the adversity i faced at a black school versus the adversity i faced at white schools i'll take that any day any day it was almost like a hazing versus hate crimes <laughs> big difference you know what i'm saying so i had pleasant experiences there it's just uh new york pleasant experience toronto amazing experiences because i actually went back to toronto in the sixth grade uh as being a little bit older and same thing new school but it was all love it was a mixed group of people mostly white but everybody got along it was different culture but like fairfax st louis no
1: I'm curious. So, can can you tell us a little bit more about not necessarily um, the adversity or getting into fights, but what, what what do you feel like transitioning from a majority white school to majority black school in St. Louis? What what is that different experience that you had that that you feel like was different in that it was about bringing you into a community as opposed to rejecting you?
0: Um, I think it was the the, the big
1: difference
0: like I said it was it felt more like hazing it was like if you can deal with this and get past this this crap we're giving you you're in you know and it was all love and and I'm sure there were, were people uh, that were like one of the few white kids that went to school there that might have a different story because um, you know if you were like in the AP classes versus the remedial you know that that was a level of crap that you got from all the other kids if you were not black that was a level of crap you had to take and endure from other kids and you put it together it's a whole different thing and it just so happened most of the white and asian kids the only ones were typically in the ap classes um but in my situation it uh, really it took one massive fight that the whole school learned about and everybody was like he's cool he he can throw down and he can handle his own (laughs) <laughs> and after that, like uh, getting back to the creative side, mm-hmm. this is only a few years after New York, so it's like that love of hip hop was able to flourish, you know, and get me steps closer to maybe that possibility of DJing and making beats.
1: So, so the, the rhythm, to just so I'm clear, the rhythm section experience—that was middle school, or was that was that in high no,
0: school? I went through. I was playing drums in high school, um, but. It was just like on my own. And then I had some friends that had, were musicians and we jam. Um, I did take some classes and then um, junior year, senior year, I was in jazz band. And uh, that allowed me to continue exploring that. But by the time I got to jazz band, uh, I actually switched to bass. So I wasn't playing drums in, in the jazz band. I switched to bass and took the advantage of the situation to kinda explore something new.
1: So it sounds like by the end of high school you've played four instruments the recorder, the saxophone, the drums, and the bass? Yeah. Okay. And so when does when do, when do you actually start to really get into hip hop in terms of Yeah, so when do you really start to get into hip hop? And yeah.
0: Uh Something in senior year made me feel like I wanted to get into the industry side as well. And I hadn't yet started DJing. I was making pause tapes since sophomore year. That was when I was like making tapes for myself. And then sometimes friends would want copies and I'd make copies for them. So that was my first kind of foray, foray into DJing. Same as uh, uh, I could say I share that with Davey D from the interview y'all did earlier this week. And um, pause tapes was the beginning for a lot of people. Pre-technology of having all these controllers and MP3s and you know, you just record off of the radio. Your favorite song comes on and you unpause it, record it and then press pause and wait for your next favorite song. And <laughs> or you take a CD or a tape, a dual tape and then make, and then piece songs together. Uh, but it wasn't until senior year, late, late senior year that I convinced my father to take me to a hi-fi store and bought this really crappy DJ turntable. It wasn't really a DJ turntable, but it was the closest thing I was going to get at the time. And then immediately went to the local vinyl shop and started buying 12 inches. And uh, so by the time I got to University of Maryland, I had my one crate or half a crate uh, of records uh, to get started with.
1: Hey, Dom, out of curiosity, because um, I at least know one thing that you haven't, Talked a a bunch about. You mentioned the fact that you have a brother. Where is your brother doing all this? And what's he doing? Like, is he an influence at any point in any of this creativity?
0: Absolutely. We're getting to a really crucial point where my brother was uh, important because uh, he was the one that bought me my first uh, sampler. And this was senior year, or this was freshman year in college. So, Apart from just being the older brother that, that has actual music in a collection already, because, you know, when you're the younger person, you're just kind of dipping into your parents' collection or your siblings' collection. So my brother was into everything from, like, punk. Uh, he introduced me to, you know, like Black Flag and groups like that. One of my all-time favorite groups, Fishbone, which is like his 80s, 90s alternative. Uh, ska and rock band that uh, doesn't get their due to this day, but they're still around. And um, and the fact that they were a black rock band was like insane to me and, and extremely influential. But then also he was the one that introduced me to uh, Run DMC, LL Cool J, and Public Enemy. And the minute I heard P.E., that was just a, a very transformative moment. So and stuff like that continued throughout my, my, my adolescence. He would just send me tapes for Christmas or something. He'd send me like a cassette of Cocktoo Twins, which are uh, an 80s and 90s post-punk group I had never heard of. And it just blew my mind. And to this day, I, I just love him to death. And he's just notorious for having done that my whole life, uh, despite not really living together. He, he stayed with my father. I was with my mother. And then he went to UCLA. And I was still you know around in St. Louis at that time. Then later uh yeah he came to stay with me and my mother in maryland for like a, a year almost and i saw what i wanted to do and believed in me and my boy mr elite from the soul controllers was selling his his eps and sonic eps and my brother was like i got you and he and he got it i gave him my drum kit to hold <laughs> as a result and he bought me the uh the sampler and that's what got me started
1: okay so you're bringing up um, the soul controllers. And for those of you that were listening on Monday or watching on Monday, we, we interviewed Bushhead Ed, Ed who's one of the members of the, of, a, of a collective. The soul controllers that began at the University of Maryland. I know my Wi Fi is special. A little bit. A <laughs>
0: little bit.
1: But I was going to say, so what What was your, did you have a connection to WMUC when you were at College Park?
0: Did I? All right, so uh, WMUC is the University of Maryland radio station. Every Friday night, they had the hip hop show called Soul Controllers. And anybody on campus that was a diehard head at the time, and keep in mind, this is, there wasn't a huge black cop population. Although my freshman year was the highest black enrollment they had ever had at the school, uh, partially because the basketball team had done so well the previous year, it put them on the map. And as a result, they had a huge uh, explosion in uh, enrollment. But for a lot of us, uh, there wasn't a, weren't a lot of places to go on campus. And one place we did find to, to kind of gather was those shows. So that that's where I met a lot of friends I still have to this day, and most importantly, is where kind of the foundation for my first rap group, Empire, uh, which um, consisted of maybe three. See, my my, I knew this was going to happen. My mic came off. I'm going to hold it. (laughs) So uh, about three people from UMCP, and uh, we went on to to like perform at the Apollo and a few other things um, before breaking up but that was the catalyst for everything because that's when I started uh, really getting high gear in the producing that's when I uh, started taking on more of like the admin side of things and understanding marketing and promotion and branding Uh, but it all starts with at soul controllers so does the does your
1: the, does black what was, it, what was it called Black Stallion? Promotion? Black with Trevor. <laughs>
0: so that's another that's another crucial moment. So one day, uh, my boy Trevor, who's a a, a frat brother with, with Mozzie, says uh, he needs help promoting a party he's going to do at in the um, Colony Ballroom on campus, and he's doing this in conjunction with another brother named T. Who had Opal Productions. And uh, T was like, hey, I'm looking to start doing stuff in DC at actual clubs. Uh, you wanna do that? And it was like, cool. So that started me on the road of promoting nightclubs at the age of like 19 uh, when I was still underage. But I was in doing like the Ritz and Quigley's and all these main, all the big hip hop spots in DC at the time. And that's when I started connecting with all the WKYS DJs. I uh, started being able to uh, open, um, not just because I was promoting the night, but because I built up enough trust with like Quicksilver from KYS and built a friendship with, with DJ Sixth Sense, who was also my age and we were the two underage guys there. Uh, that allowed me to start opening and getting free records and uh, getting my skills together. But it really wasn't until 2000 that I, I really said I'm going to do DJing for real, for real not just house parties and open up for people when I do when I can or play for uh, touring with my boys that I was producing because at the time I really got into the business side and that led into working with records record labels and then also producing my boys we would tour and I'd be the tour DJ but I hadn't really dedicated myself to clubs and 2000 is when that happened
1: just to be clear, because I was thinking this while you were talking. When you when you're talking about opening, you're talking about opening as a DJ, or were you at Did you? Is there an MC part of your story?
0: I did. A, yeah, a, in, in Empire, yeah. These, uh, I wasn't really. I would write, and I was on like one song. And anytime we went to freestyle sessions, there was a if it was like a loud club, and I was in the in the moment, I would hop on the mic. I had been known to, but that's not, I would never, ever, 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 ever call myself an MC. So dabbled.
1: So some people
0: dabbled in drugs in college, I dabbled in MCing.
1: So um, at what point do you get involved with the Midnight Forum? Cause you said, yeah.
0: All right. Uh, That had nothing to do with me being a DJ or a producer. Uh, There was a point in, like I said, I was working, uh, promoting clubs. Then our friend DJ RBI said around 98 or so was like, you need to meet this guy, the great Deity Da, who was one of the only rappers in DC at the time who was actually pressing his stuff up and promoting it uh, on the scale of what you would expect from an independent label. He was going above and beyond compared to a lot of people, no disrespect to a lot of other people. i happen to love from that era but there was only really a few very few people who who were going beyond dc you know most people were just making stuff and selling it around the around the hood or at tower records at best uh we started producing and promoting records together and then that took me around the country um as an as his dj uh which got me connected with record labels. Cause they're like, I see you everywhere. I need you working for me. So then around 2000, I get a call from Shana Lim, who is now uh, also part of the words, beats and life family. And she's like, I've been talking to this guy, Daniel Barry, who's starting a nonprofit that uses hip hop to teach entrepreneurship. And we're building a committee and he wants to have a meeting with as many like DC creatives and. In- uh, and industry people as possible. And I was looked at more from an organizational standpoint than a creative standpoint because there were other people there that were dancers, like specifically DJs, specifically MCs. And I was there sort of as this member of the community that had more of a business acumen. But that's how that started. And then I have to blame Daryl Perry from the Po MCs for actually elevating me to more of a substantial role because uh, initially we were just there as advisors to help Daniel get on get together and start developing a curriculum because again there was no such thing as hip hop nonprofits at the time now they're all over the place Words Beats and Life does it the best but at the time especially there were maybe rec centers you could go to and rap maybe you could go record somewhere but there was no place trying to teach based on a curriculum especially so uh but eventually we got our paperwork all done and there needed to be a board of directors. And uh, Daryl Perry was the one that was like, Dom should be the, the executive or should be the um, head of the board. Cause Daniel who created it was the executive director. And later on, Daryl was like, man, you reeked of responsibility. <laughs> That's why I did it. Cause he felt like more than anybody I would actually, uh, be more qualified to to be on an organizational side so it actually had zero to do with my creativity
1: so so how did how did your your creativity continue since you weren't running the organization at that point you're still you're an you're on the executive board so you're still grinding as a musician what what's happening in your life at that point
0: so i'm working with some guys from college park a brother named damian uh who went by interstellar uh a guy who who's known as the college park tupac uh lee majors and my boy Hassani latif chapman and we're just doing gigs anywhere we can get them traveling to the midwest down south putting out independent stuff and it's amazing because a lot of that stuff is i'm seeing on reddit like conversations and on youtube and all the. it's amazing who's finding all this music and actually really enjoying it and trying to find And the price on the vinyl, because it's so rare, has gone up high. Like I was at the store the other day uh, a couple months ago, actually, in L.A. called Cosmic Records, and I browsed the hip hop section and they had one of our records in there and it was in horrible condition, but still more expensive than all the mainstream stuff that I would consider classics. So it's it's wild. But that's what I was doing at the time on top of, like I said, 2000 was sort of when I said, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna take DJing more seriously, and I started. I hollered at Six Sense, and he was like, "Come on board as my opening DJ at Platinum." Platinum was the biggest, one of the biggest clubs in DC at the time. It was brand new. Sunday was the urban night of the whole week for all of the city. Uh, you know, all the Redskins were there, the the Wizards, everybody. DC Capital, or not the Capitals, but the um, the. Uh, Soccer team, you name it. Celebrities, capacities like a thousand people, amazing. And it was owned by a guy who was uh, one of the top club owners in the city at the time. And so that helped me get in to have like a longer career in the club scene. And um, and yeah, it was basically it. So I'm doing the club stuff. I'm also developing my. Uh, I'm working. As an intern for Electra, well, actually not. I went to go work for Electra, but because I wasn't in college, they wouldn't let allow me. So I was working for a lot of indie labels at the time, which then eventually became Electra as a paid uh, marketing guy uh, for DC and Baltimore. That's that's later on.
1: We'll, we'll talk about it. So so the so getting into the clubs as a DJ then opens up these music continues to open up music industry doors for you. What what happens?
0: Um, I actually got discouraged with DJ again, uh, the guy who owned Platinum was kind of a thief on levels and he was notorious, um, for screwing people over and I ain't that guy. <laughs> Problem is I'm being used on levels to, cause of my level of talent and my ability to play virtually any genre and having the actual crates to do it. So there were a lot of people that could play hip hop but not necessarily dance hall. I could go do the reggae room by myself. I could go, I could come on top 49. I could come on dance night. I could do all of that. And, uh, so I was being used to kind of test things out and I didn't work at the radio station like all the other headliners. So, and I never had any intention of being on WKYS or WPGC. I knew the politics of it. I had no desire to be in that position. Um, And but that also meant that I was going to be second tier to any of my friends that were working for the radio stations. So um, it boosts your it boosts not just your paycheck, but it boosts your uh, your notoriety and and puts you in a different league. But again, I didn't feel like that was for me. Um, I didn't want to play the same commercial songs over and over and over and over again. I'll do it at the club, but I'm not going to just go on every night for like $25, $20 a set doing that. Uh, I'm rambling.
1: You know I, I was going to ask so because so, uh, I don't, because I'm, I'm literally learning the story as we talk. So at what point um, in, how, how much later does the founding of Decipher at PFW happen?
0: Alright, so What ended up happening with with working the hip hop clubs was uh, I decided never to work for that that owner again, which then cut out 50% of the clubs. And I had already determined I was never going to work for the other guy who owned the other 50%. So there was a year around 2004 where I just didn't DJ at all. Uh, But I was at home doing what would ultimately be termed as open format, which didn't exist prior to then. Uh, just experimenting, which then got me in the door at Steve's barroom later on, um, which then took me to a whole different level, but I won't get into that now. But around that time, uh, when the whole open format scene came out and I became one of the main people in that set, moving from the urban clubs to DuPont Circle, working more for like a white audience, uh, playing a wide variety of things. Um, I get a call from a guy named Mazi Mutafa who says that there's uh, this radio station that's going to start doing a hip-hop strip. And he had this idea for bringing three people from hip-hop nonprofits together to discuss current events and and local things and play hip-hop. And that's when the whole Decipher thing happened, uh, thanks to you. Uh, So that's what was going on. And also at that time, I had become really well- uh, established within being one of the primary go-to's as a street retail in college and club marketing rep for uh, major labels so i was working for virgin records electra i was working for movie companies like uh like columbia taking on like rockstar games at I, I always have too many hustles going on so i had like dupont city circle clubs Nonprofit at the Midnight Forum, I'm doing work for the record labels and media companies and then get called in to do these radio shows.
1: And then it's not too long after that, that um, you get a call from Councilmember Graham's office about the idea of taking what you're doing with young people around graffiti to create a new initiative, right?
0: Correct. So I know a lot of people are like, this is, this is too much stuff. <laughs> So by this time, we're about five, six years in on the Midnight Forum. Um, I've been exec- er, the, the board chair, but also the primary person in terms of uh, curriculum development, enrollment, running classes. If anybody's worked for a nonprofit, you know how it goes. You're wearing a lot of hats. And uh, Daniel, the founder, who was executive director, dis- uh, decided to leave due to an illness uh, he's doing fine now, but at the time it was best for him to leave. And that put everything on my shoulders. And I became, I d- opted to break from the board to become executive director uh, at his behest, uh, filled my position on the board. And um, we got an office down by Howard off of S Street in Georgia, or in Seventh, and started working out of a church there. New, shout out to New Community and yeah we started doing more and more murals at that time which caught the attention of Graham, council member Graham rest in peace um, whose office called me and I thought they were trying to get me to snitch on folks, they're like we heard you do uh, graffiti work I'm like yeah um who do you work with why do you want to know do you know of a person named Mo? What are you trying to get at? And I was really suspicious. Like these dudes are trying to on some FBI COINTELPRO trying to get me a snitch on my community. I was like, look, if you're trying to get me to like rat some people out and, and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not it. We actually want to try to do something that that, that helps the, your community uh, by helping solve our problems. So they, we came up with a program called Murals DC that was in a, a, a tagging abatement program where we took defaced property that had been tagged on and used students and established graffiti artists during the summer to paint murals with input from the community. And this, I believe, is still going on, <laughs> but I ran it with, with help from other organizations like Words Beats and Life for three years. When I moved to L.A., uh, Words Beats and Life became the, the, the managers and, um, and as I think you told me now, it's 100% under the banner of uh, DC um, Commission on the Arts and Humanities. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You still there, man?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: I need some water. I'm talking too much.
1: All right. so, so, The answer to your question is, it's actually still a partnership between the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities and the Department of Public Works. They actually don't. They haven't stayed true to the mission of engaging young people. They just pay artists to come in and paint murals. Um,
0: I'm curious, though, are they still at least staying true to the idea of uh, using more contemporary, well, urban styles of art? Because the, the biggest hurdle we had to, to, to leap in establishing the program was first year. We had a lot of adversity from the commission saying they weren't comfortable with doing graffiti. I'm like, why are we doing this if it's not 100 percent graffiti? And thanks to a few people that they respected that were that they made be part of our advisory board uh, that fought on our behalf, saying, I don't even want to be a part of this if it's not a graffiti program. Only reason I'm here is because you said it was going to be a graffiti program, but you're trying to put in all these traditional artists that your commission's been giving grants to without any type of, you know, really vetting for decades. That They're tired, they're old, they're played out. Time for the new blood. And we did a lot to make sure that that became the mission, that we brought in new blood, new urban-based artists that have a foot inside hip hop culture that even if they don't do graffiti and aren't traditionally aerosol, there are people like a neocon that could come in uh, who has a hip hop background, but hadn't yet and was working with acrylics, but hadn't yet really had the opportunity to work with aerosol. And uh, I was hoping that would still be the case, but apparently not. But at least for many, many years, that was the case.
1: So So we won
0: that battle, at least temporarily.
1: Agreed. So now we're at the point where you transition to to move to LA, to pursue a different set of a different set of dreams. Um, can you talk to me a little bit? About, we're, in, we're in our last ten minutes, and we're, we're, it's crazy. We're almost caught up to the present. I can my story in one hour. <laughs> so let's talk about. Y'all still story. out there? Anybody watching? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the comments, I've been-
0: oh, you're breaking up a little bit. What's the question?
1: Did you? Nope. No, I said they've been there we go. been posting comments. I've been, I've been sharing them. So yeah, there's people watching. So Hi. you moved to LA. What, what took you to LA?
0: Shout out to Jasmine if she's watching, bands. Anybody else? So I moved to LA, yes.
1: Tell me, what made you move to LA? Because you, you've already talked about moving your whole life. Um, so what made you decide to, to, to chase another dream out in Los Angeles?
0: I felt like there was nothing left for me to do. In DC, I was like, if I'm going to do entertainment, this ain't the spot. It's just not the place to be. It's like, I got to be in New York. I got to be in L.A. And as you can tell, I had a lot I was juggling and I needed a reason to stop doing so much. I was like, this one thing will never work if I'm constantly running a nonprofit doing radio, running a blog. That's another thing we didn't talk about. The whole hipster overkill section of my life at the end of my term in D.C.
1: Let's go back. Let's go back to Steve's barroom and hipster overkill.
0: (laughs) So around the late 2000s, I just decided to, uh, that I was, I actually left Decipher at WPFW because I was uninspired by hip hop in the 2000s. It just wasn't doing anything for me. I had a hard time finding new music every week uh, that that I was excited about. And I didn't want to fall into complacency playing the same old De La Soul and Pete Rock and Gangstar tracks every week. I was like, if I can't be inspired by what's new Then I need to find something else that happened to be the budding sort of like all the indie dance music that was coming out through warehouses. So it was every this weird crossroads, everything from M.I.A. to uh, to A-Track and Diplo in the Fool's Gold and Mad Decent thing starting to bubble to uh, some European DJs like Fetty Legrand and Eric Prids that were having some success um, breaking through with dance records in the United States, which was not a thing that was accepted on commercial radio at the time, which is hard to believe. So me and a brother named Demetrius George decided to be like, look, we're never gonna get ahead unless we start a promotion company and make our own brand. And that ended up being Hipster Overkill. And I brought my homie, uh, Sean, MC Sean Lucas in, and he was you know, sort of the, the gasoline that really got us going and accepted in D.C., but that opened up all these doorways in the dance community, because we had this blog, and we were one of the first people in that movement profiling dance music. And dance music's always been the ugly stepchild of the music industry, and you could be a house fan and not really know much or anything about your favorite DJ and producer, let alone what they look like sometimes. So. We were actually producing mtv kind of quality profiles video profiles on the 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 a-list people or all the up-and-coming people who never get respect from mtv and rolling stone and we had the doors flung open for us and that essentially was the catalyst because i now had all these contacts in la with steve ioki's mock and all these people to to be able to come here and have sort of a an in already i had i had contacts but it's all because of hipster overkill. And at that time it was right when suddenly dance music started like propelling. So I was lucky enough to be part of the hip hop scene before it was profitable and ride that. And then suddenly get in on this new wave and be part of something that suddenly became like dominating worldwide. This is pre Electric Daisy Carnival, like being like the number one festival in the United States, you know, and EDM being even a term people knew.
1: so 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 you use those relationships or those relationships are part of what draw you out to LA to do what yeah
0: I mean I was like look I need to stop doing 10 things I need to do if I'm gonna do DJing and music I gotta focus on DJing and music and DC is not a place where you're gonna succeed beyond a certain level you know if I want to make more than like 500 dollars I want to make a thousand two thousand ten thousand a hundred thousand dollars got to go to LA didn't get to that level but (laughs) I'm doing well uh but it's still way more opportunity here and the the way that industry people started looking at me that I've known for years suddenly people that I'm like friends with started looking at me in a completely different light simply by relocating to a city that deemed me as being someone that was serious about my craft and my desire to do this. And you're frozen. Boogity boo. All right. So (laughs) I came out here and I was able to use those connections. Um, Again, it was doing my own blog was my end by creating this platform for other artists and a brand, I was able to get just media, comp. everybody from PR, like every all your favorite DJs and producers, all their management and press people wanted us on their side. And so I didn't get into EDM through just diehard DJing. Like, I'm going to just beat this door down as one thing. It was actually the side door that I went through. That got me in to be able to even be an LA-based DJ. And
1: and so, talk to because we're we're down to the last four minutes. Talk to me about what you're doing now in the, in this moment. I know you're do, you've been doing graphic arts work this whole time, which you didn't mention. Um, you're doing you're on the Pacifica station uh, in Los Angeles, um, doing some work there, and you're also doing these live streams. Um, Working to, to grow a, working to grow uh working to grow a virtual audience in what's really a tough environment, but in did were you doing that before? So hard. I was not. Okay. So let, let's There's, talk about where you are right what now. It was
0: live streaming. That was for video games. You know? I'm like most DJs. This is a new thing I had to just develop. Uh I just happened to be really I already had this background in video editing and graphic design and so when i started learning all this back end to broadcasting it it helped me create something visually that stood out uh and it's hard to explain it here but uh i get a lot of credit for my my virtual stages and my environments that i create um compared to what a lot of other people are doing and that uh again, help me do things like doing graphic design. I get more graphic clients as a result because I had to start doing more of that to make ends meet during COVID, there's no nightclubs, So graphic design became a a, a method of staying afloat. But I get a lot of that that work and I get to do birthday parties on Zoom and I'm still lucky enough to get paid to DJ during quarantine Simply because I had this ability to create something visually attention-grabbing, but it's a skill set that I had zero knowledge of in April. I had to develop this basically like June, June I think I started getting into it, and then July was when I really like started streaming, and then uh, it's evolved. I keep upping it every time, uh, but yeah, the whole. The whole virtual game is very, very strange, very weird. Luckily, I also do radio. I'm on Dash Radio, which is the world's number one commercial-free internet radio station. There's a lot of people on there from, like Snoop Dogg has his own station, for instance. I do a show on the Delicious Vinyl station, which is full circle, because the first label to pay me as a marketing rep was Delicious Vinyl. So I do a show every Monday, or every Tuesday, called Fade, which is my promotion company in LA that focuses on... uh, uh, We started sort of as a global base uh, promotion company to do parties that cater to everybody from the Caribbean community, to the Latin community, to anybody, any ages, didn't matter, sexuality. And now it's become this whole thing with the radio show, um, playing bass music from Brazil to Africa, to the Caribbean, it's phenomenal, I love it. And then that got me into doing Pacifica Radio again, which is out here, it's KPFK as opposed to WPFW that was in uh, DC.
1: I gotta say, this this is really changing. You're the first person I've said to in this series. I wish I had another hour actually, just to talk to you about um, from hipster overkill to now, because it feels like we're missing a lot because I don't know the questions to ask. But I wanna thank you for, for spending this hour with me. Um, I've learned a ton about you. I wonder if you could give advice to that younger Dominic um, maybe that's in one of those racist cities um, what, what would you say what would you say to him about um, just some words of encouragement or, or, or you know something that's going to guide him what's
0: funny is I haven't made all the right steps uh, but I didn't care that much about what people thought and um and that was what I just knew I had a passion for it and I was going to do it. There's not a lot I could tell younger me because I had I had goals and I did it. Whether it was like a complete success or not is another thing. But I, I don't fault any of those decisions that I made because um, there's a whole nother trajectory I could have gone on. I was offered a job by Arista Records to be the head, uh, be the, the assistant to the head of the Mid-Atlantic office. That could have been a whole different Dominic in 2020. You know, I could be in an office running a department right now. So only thing I would really say is really decide, really don't buck the system so much, you know, really take into consideration uh, the opportunities that can come for working for other people. Uh, I love working for myself, so I wouldn't change that. But at the same time, I often think, I'm like, what if I had taken that job? That could have been such a completely different future for me, but um, I was doing really well for myself at the time, so I was like, nope, sticking with myself, just going with me.
1: No doubt. Well, I definitely want to thank you for spending this hour with me, sharing some of your story, especially for those of us who know you but not, might not know these details. I definitely feel like I feel like I could be a better friend because I actually know more about you. Um, and I really appreciate you Um for sharing the journey because I feel like even in this in this hour um, I'm inspired uh, to continue to, to to chase dreams and to 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 make things that I know are valuable um, so thank you so much for spending this time with us I want to thank
0: actually I know what I would tell younger me
1: <laughs> keep playing saxophone <laughs> we're in quarantine I'm, 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 let's get you a saxophone all right let's do it I'm gonna start the GoFundMe
0: when we hang up
1: no doubt and so for people who want to watch you on live stream uh where where can they find you
0: uh all my links are at uh djdpainter.com my name is dominic painter i go by d painter Uh, a lot of people think it's dj painter no DJ D painter and i have a new single out called i ain't got um you can check that out on spotify title apple uh youtube everywhere But you can get the link by going to DJD Painter and find me at DJD Painter on Instagram. Dope.
1: Thanks so much, Dominic. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it. It's actually archived on our YouTube page, on our Facebook page. Um, And we're going to go ahead and close out. This is all part of the Alternative Winter Break Media Arts Edition. We've got more interviews next week. um, But for now... Why don't I share a couple of commercials for the Academy and maybe if you know a young person who's interested in pursuing a career similar to what Dominic described um, and they live in the DMV area, maybe they can enroll.
0: This podcast was produced by Executive Director Mazi Mutafa. Post-production by Rhythm Lingo Music. Past episodes can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Mixcloud. Words, Beats, and Life Podcasts are produced through funding from partner grants and in-kind donations from people like you. Visit wblinc.org donate to make a contribution.